Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, A Lover's War, James Baldwin. The American dream is at the expense of the American Negro. This motion was put up for debate at the Cambridge Union Society in February 1965, Speaking on one side was the essayist and novelist James Baldwin, at this time a major figure in American culture. His opponent, the conservative William F. Buckley, rather sardonically noted that there was not a university in the land where Baldwin was not the toast of the town. If you watch the debate, which is available on YouTube, you'll see why. As he explains to this largely white British audience what it means to be black in America, Baldwin is by turns nuanced, rhetorically strident, and mordantly funny, as when he looks back on his own childhood, it comes as a great shock around the age of five or six or seven to discover that the flag to which you have pledged allegiance along with everybody else has not pledged allegiance to you. His argument is that the African-American is shaped by a history of oppression that traps both victim and perpetrator in a cycle of delusion and cruelty, one that can be ended only through empathy which he, of course, failed to receive from Buckley. He portrayed Baldwin as a prophet of despair, who taught that American civilization, and indeed Western civilization, has failed him and his people, and that we ought to throw it over. Baldwin would in fact have had good reason for being suspicious about Buckley's talk of civilization. The latter's periodical, The National Review, had a few years earlier argued for continued dominance of the white community in the southern United States on the grounds that, for the time being, it is the advanced race and should uphold civilized standards rather than bow to the demands of the numerical majority. At Cambridge, Buckley spoke after Baldwin, so we do not know what Baldwin would have said in response if given the opportunity, but a fair guess could be made on the basis of an interview Baldwin had given two years earlier, in 1963. When the white reporter asked him to say whether the civil rights movement would become violent, Baldwin replied, The history of the civilization that you want me to imitate is a history of violence, of bloodshed. Whether it becomes violent or nonviolent depends on you. Violence, he added, was being done to black people in your name. You have no right, no right not to know that. The accusation being made here by Baldwin is one he frequently aimed at white Americans. Even if they were not directly guilty of violence, they were guilty of willful ignorance of conveniently failing to notice their position of cultural and economic supremacy and what was being done to maintain it. This unjust situation is the status quo, which goes by the name of civilization, and any action taken against it is therefore, by definition, violent and uncivilized. Or, as Baldwin once wrote, the idea of white supremacy rests simply on the fact that white men are the creators of civilization, the present civilization, which is the only one that matters. His essays often reflect on the marginal place of black people within or on the edges of this monolithic white culture, reminding us once again of W.E.B. Du Bois, who spoke of the double consciousness of the black person, always looking at oneself through the eyes of others. Baldwin talked of learning in his youth that to be a Negro meant precisely that one was never looked at, but was simply at the mercy of the reflexes the color of one's skin caused in other people. 
what to do about this. In particular, what to do about this as a writer. On this subject, as on so many others, Baldwin had strong opinions. One of his first famous essays was Everybody's Protest Novel, which we've touched on already because of its criticism of Richard Wright. For Baldwin, novels like Wright's Native Son and what he took to be its forebear, Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe, do not really upset the system of oblivious whites and victimized blacks. They merely give us as readers a very definite thrill of virtue from the fact that we are reading such a book at all. In another essay called Many Thousands Gone, Baldwin argued that the politicized figure of the Negro, like Wright's character Bigger Thomas, does not really exist except in the darkness of our minds. We associate with this figure only depressing statistics and the prospect of violence. Instead of this, Baldwin wanted to portray the richness, the texture, the humanity of individual lives, starting with his own. He often wrote autobiographically, whether recalling his childhood as he did in the Cambridge debate, or describing his experiences as an American exile in Europe. Born into a poor Harlem family in 1924, Baldwin benefited from the support of a series of men who noticed his prodigious intelligence and talent. The first of these was the poet, County Cullen, whom we have mentioned as a luminary of the Harlem Renaissance. Cullen was an advisor for the literary club at Baldwin's junior high school and helped Baldwin get into the prestigious DeWitt Clinton High School. In Greenwich Village, he later encountered an inspirational father figure, Buford Delaney, who gave him a model for life as an artist, an alternative to what Baldwin was doing at the time, which was to use his gifts as a precocious teenage preacher. Further support came from Richard Wright, who helped him get a fellowship to support his work as a writer. All the while, Baldwin was simmering with rage at the innumerable other indignities to which he was subject as a black man in America. He recklessly got into confrontations, as when he threw a water pitcher at a waitress who refused him service at a restaurant. Despite his reservations about Wright's native son, his own experience seemed in this case to confirm that Wright had not been wrong. Oppression does breed feelings of violence. Fittingly then, Baldwin related this experience in an essay entitled Notes of a Native Son. Still, as Baldwin said in one of his many essays about his own life, there is no such thing as common experience, because experience is a private and a very largely speechless affair. All black men suffer from an internal warfare involving a competition between rage, suppression of rage, and feelings of contempt. But, Baldwin noted, there are no doubt as many ways of coping with the resulting complex of tensions as there are black men in the world. Baldwin's way of coping was to leave America for France in 1948. Otherwise, as he famously remarked, he was going to kill somebody or be killed. His book, Nobody Knows My Name, offers a rather more nuanced explanation. I wanted to prevent myself from becoming merely a Negro. I wanted to find out in what way the specialness of my experience could be made to connect me with other people instead of dividing me from them. It's tempting to say that this is Baldwin's mission summed up in one sentence, though there are lots of sentences in Baldwin that might give you that feeling. By presenting himself as more than merely a Negro, as James Baldwin, and not just another cipher like Bigger Thomas, he could give his readers a chance to understand him, and thus to understand themselves, since those readers had been forged in the same fires from which Baldwin had emerged. That would very much include white readers. Baldwin said that whatever white people do not know about Negroes reveals precisely and inexorably what they do not know about themselves, and that 
the price of the liberation of the white people is the liberation of the blacks. And here's another way he put it. At the root of the American Negro problem is the necessity of the American white man to find a way of living with the Negro in order to be able to live with himself. Because white people are oblivious to the oppression that keeps them in a dominant position, they suffer from what we might call false consciousness or willful delusion. Baldwin wanted to do white audiences the favor of dispelling that delusion. It's a point he made at the Cambridge debate. Just as black Americans may suffer from the misconception that they belong where white people have put them, white Americans suffer from a bogus perception of their own place in the world that rests on racial difference. Even the poorest white man will take refuge in the consolation that at least he is not black. Because Baldwin saw ignorance of the self as such a terrible fate, he said in Cambridge that what has happened to white Southerners is in some ways, after all, much worse than what has happened to Negroes. Better to be oppressed and tortured and to know who you are than to be a deluded oppressor and torturer. If this reminds you a bit of Socrates and his signature claim that it is worse to do injustice than to suffer it, then you're not alone. Cornell West once called Baldwin a black American Socrates, honoring his role as a gadfly provoking Americans instead of Athenians into self-knowledge. Baldwin himself alluded to Socrates' most famous maxim, writing in Nobody Knows My Name, I still believe that the unexamined life is not worth living, and I know that self-delusion in the service of no matter what small or lofty cause is a price no writer can afford. By confronting white Americans with their complicity in oppression, this black American Socrates could induce them to examine their own lives more carefully. The same result might be achieved at the level of society as a whole by undoing the structures of segregation. If the word integration means anything, wrote Baldwin, this is what it means, that we, with love, shall force our brothers to see themselves as they are, to cease fleeing from reality and begin to change it. We may be taken aback here by the invocation of love. Having just recently considered Richard Wright and his vivid depiction of violence and amorality as a reaction to oppression, and given Baldwin's reputation as a fiery activist and critic of racism, it comes as a shock to find him repeatedly insisting that black people should love white people, and often do. Failing that, they tend to feel pity rather than hate, seeing as they do that whites are slightly mad victims of their own brainwashing. Love comes easily in the face of such ignorance and innocence, even if the innocence is culpable. Such declarations must have come naturally to Baldwin, given his youthful years in the pulpit. As he matured and left religion behind, he transposed the theme of Christ's selfless, liberating love to describe something he did still believe in, his own vocation as a writer. In another sentence that seems to distill Baldwin's life work into just a few words, he states, The war of an artist with his society is a lover's war, and he does at his best what lovers do, which is to reveal the beloved to himself, and with that revelation, make freedom real. Far from being a prophet of despair, as Buckley called him, Baldwin wanted to convince black and white people not just that they could live together, but that they could not avoid living together. More than that, they could not avoid being shaped by one another. The innumerable and irreducibly individual ways that this shaping takes place, for good and bad, constituted Baldwin's great subject. This is arguably a very different approach to the so-called race problem than what we've been seeing in other mid-century Africana thinkers. 
Marxists like Claudia Jones and C.L.R. James were less interested in the idea of spreading love than in the goal of smashing the oppressive structures of capitalism and imperialism. For the most part, Baldwin eschewed this kind of large-scale political project. In one public appearance, he said that politics is more a matter of daily improvisation than adherence to a consistent ideology. His occasional comments on Marxism were typically trenchant and amusing. In the 30s, swallowing Marx whole, we discovered the worker and realized, I should think with some relief, that the aims of the worker and the aims of the Negro were one. This central tenet of black socialism is summarily dismissed by Baldwin. The white working class and black population may have some common interests, but that's as far as it goes. He had more to say about another movement we've looked at in some detail, Nekotud. In an essay called Princes and Powers, included in Nobody Knows My Name, he reported from the 1956 Congress of Black Writers and Artists, held at the Sorbonne in Paris. We already mentioned this event in episode 88, while discussing Aimé and Suzanne Sreser. Richard Wright, who was also there, posed the following question in reaction to Leopold Senghor's account of African culture. Where do I, an American Negro, stand in relation to that culture? For Baldwin, the event brought home precisely the cultural distance that separated him as an African-American from thinkers who were either from Africa or from elsewhere in the African diaspora. Senghor's description of the aesthetics of African art failed to resonate with anything Baldwin felt able to recognize from growing up in the USA. Baldwin again used humor to get across a serious point. Poems and stories, in the only situation I know anything about, were never told, except rarely to children and, at the risk of mayhem, in bars. Baldwin was not out simply to dismiss the relevance of negritude for African Americans, though. He also suggested that something was, in fact, missing from the negritude movement. As he had written in an earlier essay, the Black American is a hybrid who carries with him the history of the grim encounter with white oppressors, what Baldwin here called the memory of the auction block. As a result, he is bone of their bone, flesh of their flesh. They have loved and hated and obsessed and feared each other, and his blood is in their soil. Therefore, he cannot deny them, nor can they ever be divorced. And this, from Baldwin's point of view at least, gives African Americans a special perspective and insight into Western culture that Africans lack. In his report on the Paris Conference, he wrote that the gulf which yawns between the American Negro and all other men of color is a very sad and dangerous state of affairs, for the American Negro is possibly the only man of color who can speak of the West with real authority, whose experience, painful as it is, also proves the vitality of these so transgressed Western ideals. We are thus brought back once again to the idea that black and white people, in America at least, are a single people that should be united by love, yet are separated from one another by illusions about opposed identity. We can see something similar in his reaction to Elijah Muhammad and his Nation of Islam, which Baldwin wrote about in a celebrated essay called Down at the Cross, Letter from a Region in My Mind. It appeared in the New Yorker magazine in 1962, and was then included in his book, The Fire Next Time. In the essay, he speaks of being invited to the home of Elijah Muhammad in Chicago, and describes the poignant scene that unfolded between them. No less than in his encounter with William F. Buckley just a few years later, but of course for very different reasons, Baldwin and Elijah Muhammad were doomed to speak past one another. 
Baldwin understood full well why the Nation of Islam proclaimed all whites to be devils. As he puts it in his essay, most Negroes cannot risk assuming that the humanity of white people is more real to them than their color. Yet he could not see himself as a possible follower of Elijah Muhammad. This was in part because of his alienation from organized religion following his early years as a preacher. Pressed by Muhammad on questions of faith, he said simply, I'm a writer. I like doing things alone. But the deeper reason was that he saw racial antagonism, however understandable, as the problem, not the solution. During the conversation, he thought to himself, but dared not say aloud, I love a few people and they love me, and some of them are white. And isn't love more important than color? Much later in his career, writing in the 1980s, Baldwin offered an explanation of how he came to think this way, to decide that the only war he wanted to fight was a lover's war. It appears in an essay called Freaks and the American Ideal of Manhood, a frank discussion of sexuality originally published in Playboy. During his youth, Baldwin says that for him, all of the American categories of male and female, straight or not, black or white, were shattered, thank heaven. This was thanks to his emerging sense of his own sexual identity, which would make him an awkward ally for the political left and a tricky proposition for publishers. The editors at Knopf told him to burn rather than publish his pioneering novel about a gay love affair, Giovanni's Room, and John and Robert Kennedy derisively referred to him as Martin Luther Queen. Most people, now and then, would simply think of Baldwin as a homosexual, but he himself said that such categories are 20th century terms which, for me, really have very little meaning. And the main idea of his essay on the ideal of manhood is not to celebrate love between male and male. Instead, it questions the very dichotomy of male and female, just as Baldwin's previous work challenged stark opposition between the races. At one point in the essay, he says, It seems to me, possibly because I am black, very dangerous to model one's opposition to the arbitrary definition, the imposed ordeal, merely on the example supplied by one's oppressor. The object of one's hatred is never, alas, conveniently outside, but is seated in one's lap, stirring in one's bowels, and dictating the beat of one's heart. Transposing this insight to the realm of gender, he asserts that all humans are ultimately androgynous, and have the freedom to determine for themselves how they will partake of the characteristics we associate with male and female. In yet another passage that condenses Baldwin's message into a short compass, he writes, Each of us, helplessly and forever, contains the other, male and female, female and male, white and black, and black and white. We are a part of each other. Earlier in this episode, we mentioned how, in 1965, Baldwin challenged an interviewer who asked him to espouse nonviolence. You might already have guessed what inspired that question. The two were discussing the peaceful protests led by the man whose name was revised by the Kennedys in order to mock Baldwin's sexuality, Martin Luther King Jr. Baldwin knew King, worked together with him in the civil rights movement, and wrote an essay about him that contains the classic line, The Reverend King is not like any preacher I've ever met before. For one thing, to state it baldly, I liked him. Next time, you'll have a chance to decide if you agree, as you listen to the first of multiple episodes addressing the career and ideas of King. So it would be a royal disappointment to us if you missed the next installment of The History of Africana Philosophy. 